Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. We're through going through the Torah section of Beshelach, which covers uh, Exodus chapter 13, starting verse 17, goes through chapter 17, verse 16, so through the end of chapter 17. And it encompasses the Exodus, the actual going out of the land of Mitzrayim, crossing through the sea, the destruction of the army of Mitzrayim, and going through and then out into the wilderness beyond the sea and then encountering problems with food and with water and then closing out with the defeat of Amalek and this force that kept attacking from the rear, attacking the, the young, attacking the old that were not the main fighting force. They would come around in behind. So you may think, well, what on earth does this have to do with all the other passages that we just read today, um, looking in Matthew chapter 14, Mark 6, and John 6, and then also the passages that we saw there from Matthew chapter 8 and also Mark chapter 4 and 5. You know, what does all this have to do with it? Well, you might have noticed a common theme of some of those other passages, and that relates to water, big bodies of water, and mastery of heaven over the water. To put it in modern parlance, you have heaven shows who's boss over the seas and the forces that are in control or think they're in control. So before we circle back around to our main topic of those passages that we saw in the apostolic writings, a little bit of a big picture because these questions also show up in all of the apostolic writings passages we, we looked at. And we covered this in great detail in years past with some very detailed studies we've done on Bashelach, which you can find at halal.info slash p16. Uh, halal.info slash p16. So big questions that we have in this particular passage is the primary one, and you saw it there in Exodus chapter 17. Is God with us or not? And that God with us, we see expressed later on very explicitly in the prophets related in prophet Isaiah in particular with a messianic prophecy where one of the sons was to be called Immanuel, which means God with us. And that was to be a sign, a sign of that God actually was with Israel. And with Yeshiahu, he was in this time of exiles where the people of God were in massive turmoil, massive turmoil dealing with the exiles that were, were happening and wondering, well, what is God doing about this? Here you have the apple or the pupil of the eye of God here, Israel, and he says he's going to protect it like the pupil of his eye. Where you know, you know what happens if you go into an optometrist and they start doing eye exams, how, yeah, that is amazing and if you ever had any corneal surgery or stuff uh, that's also quite amazing what uh, pain number one and number two all the involuntary reflexes that are built into your body to protect your eyes so that is a promise that the lord is saying hey he is going to protect israel like the pupil of the eye so some secondary questions that we have since we're talking about the Exodus is that, you know, are we really free? Okay, you're in the house of bondage. You get freed. The door is open of the jail, so to speak. You walk out. 
Do you stay in your jail cell? Do you decide that you're going to take your chains, your handcuffs, and just take them along with you and just decide to cuff yourself up and keep yourself in bondage? So, all right, so you get out of your jail cell. Well, where are you going then? You know, there's always a, a big challenge that we have in even modern society. We got the big 50 cent word for that. We call it recidivism. And there's a very high recidivism rate, which means you go back to the place you were before. And you see that described in very graphic detail in the book of Proverbs related to a dog and, yes, returning to it. The stuff that you think, oh, that's awful. Leave it out of yourself. No, return to it. So that is a very sad situation that you would return to that old way of life. Well, that's one of the things that you see in modern life when if people are ever in serious incarceration or if it even doesn't get to that, they go from one problem to another problem to another problem to another problem. You know, and people may come along and say, well, why do you keep going back to the same issue that you have? And you never leave your house of bondage. So where are you going once you get out of one house of bondage? Are you going right back into the next one or are you going into another one? And then also, how will we get our daily bread? How will we be sustained? And where will we find this living water? So these are questions that are just as relevant today as they were in the time of the crossing of the sea. So those are big questions that we've, we've looked at in years past. And there's all sorts of reflections that we've seen on this particular topic. We've looked a lot at Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 about entering his rest. And we see in Hebrews 3 and 4, there's continual going back, going back, going back to this passage in Psalm 95, which says, you know, I swore my wrath, you will not enter my rest. And that also goes back to the passage we read today, Exodus chapter 17, about this Masa and Meribah, this place where they ask that question, is the Lord with us or not? So that gets us to our topic that we're looking at here today. And the topic we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, John chapter 6, Matthew chapter 8, Mark 4 and 5, is you've got these, these two accounts. They're very similar. In fact, you know, if you've ever watched some Bible movies, sometimes they'll artistically blend them together because they're very similar. So they'll just add, make it one and the same. Because a lot of the same lessons that are in both of these accounts are very similar. But one of which was, you see in Matthew 14, Mark 6, John chapter 6, is that you have the, the meandering Messiah just meandering out across the waves. And these students, the 12, think it's a ghost, think it's an apparition, and they're terrified. But you get the master says to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then you have the other account that you find in Matthew 8 and Mark's chapter four, Mark chapters 4 and 5, where you've got the Napinetzer or the branch. Yeshua is asleep in the boat. And he tames the tempest, the storm that's out and he asked them at the end, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? So in both of these cases, you know, when you see what is going on under the hood with this, you know, if you look at the situation where this is all happening in the first century, you've got, and this, uh, for those who can see this map here, we've got on one side, you see the different areas, the different um, provinces of the Holy Land in the first century AD. And you have 
the province of Syrophoenicia, which covers modern-day Syria, and then goes down the, the, the coastline of the Mediterranean and covers a good portion of you know, modern-day Israel for the areas that were called Samaria and Judea. And then at the south southern end of Judea was the area called Idumea. So like when you hear about Herod, the Idumeans, um, that area there. But then you also had the, the um, province that was on the east side of the Jordan River. So at the, north, uh, the northeast corner uh, area of the Dead Sea and along the east bank of the Jordan River in modern-day country of Jordan is the area of uh, province of Perea. And Perea and the province of the Galilee, those were both under the tetrarchy of Herod Antipas. You read about him in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And then you've got the area that was called the Decapolis, and you uh, saw reference to it today, and, and that's on the, would be the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Kenneret. That area, Decapolis, is Greek for 10 cities. And um, this area, Decapolis, stretches all the way back to the time of Alexander because uh, historians, including some Roman historians at the time period, noted that this was thought to be set up when Alexander, when he would go through an area, <laughs> he had a system where he would basically put the local administrators would be, would be some of his officers that were near retirement. So he would just kind of leave them behind to run the areas that he would be going through. And that is the area where the Decapolis was areas that were left over from that time of Alexander. Now, you know what, what happened to Alexander? We go through this during Hanukkah time period, and we see Alexander, the Greek empire, broke up amongst his generals. There was a number of them, but there were four main ones that ended up having fights between them, and the, the empire got broken up between them. And so this area here was um, with the general Seleucus, so it became the Seleucid Empire. And then down the south, in where you have North Africa, modern-day Egypt, that area was Ptolemy. So that then became the Ptolemaic Empire. Uh, you know, Cleopatra, that sort of thing, that time period. Then you had the Romans parlayed and eventually took over the Ptolemaic Empire and took over the Seleucid Empire as well. And But... That gets um, into the first century where you've got these little provinces here where some of them are Roman, some of them are um, vassals, and Herod Antipas and Philip had a little tetrarchy. Tetrarchy means rule of four areas or could also mean uh, like a subsections of something, little fiefdoms, you might say, where the local lord has control. So in the area where you had the Decapolis, it had big remnants of its Greek influence, uh, the Greek empire of where it started from. So heavily Hellenized area of it. So thus when we see today about our, you saw in our today's reading about the herd of pigs, and such that was not uncommon for this area when just a little ways away that would be not the case and we look a little bit on the the scene the, the map that we have on the left side of the screen if you can see that is a satellite image taken from the international space station back in 2009 of the sea of kenarets or tiberius or galilee now you can see that you have a division on the west shore of it, and you're thinking like Tahoe, 
I think of Lake Tahoe, you have one shore of it is in California, one shore of it's in, in Nevada. Well, similar in, in the Sea of Galilee, where one side, the western shore, is divided between north and south Galilee. And those areas at the northwest corner of it is where you have the Gennesaret area. And then on the sort of the northwest shore, you've got Magdala, and then at the top end of it, you have Capernaum. Uh, and then you've got Bethsaida, which is more drifting over into the Tetrarchy of Philip area. And so you've got these, <laughs> these areas, these three powers that are surrounding this lake. And so one of the ways that both today and, you know, like in the San Francisco Bay Area, especially with the traffic being as it is, one of the ways that you can efficiently get around the bay is to do what? Go across the bay. You can either do that with a bridge or with the ferries that we have today, or a plane, if you, <laughs> which takes a lot of work and lots of security checks, etc. But the two main ways that we do that today is by boats, ferries, and by bridges. So just as it was then, so it is now today, the ferries being one way that you can get across and have different ways of going from one place to the other. Because in ancient times, bridges, they did have some significant bridges, but they didn't span huge areas like seven miles, which is what the span is from Magdala all the way to the east shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's seven miles across at the widest point. So if you were to go from Magdala or Tiberias, which is a little bit south on the west shore over to the east shore, you know, that's, that's a little bit less. It's about five miles. So that's a long way even today for a bridge to span that. So you go by boat. Well, one of the issues that you have with that of going by boat is that you hope the seas are good. And even today, if you've ever been out on the San Francisco Bay, when there's a lot of chop and such, even on a ferry. Have you ever been out on a, on a bad day on a ferry? It, it, it can get a little bit. And that's on a big, big boat. Well, imagine going across on a much, much smaller boat. You might have seen sailboats as they going across the, the bay and how they might struggle on a day where there's lots of wind and lots of waves and such. And that's in a bay. So a rather, rather smaller Bay Area. So it gives you a picture of what the scene is looking like here with going across in a small little fishing boat. And they've, you probably, if those of you have been to Israel have seen the museums there where they have the, the boats that they found of that time period, that's a rather small boat compared to being in a ferry and being out in any sort of chop um, I could say from being out in um, about 10 to 20 foot seas in a 17 foot boat is quite an experience. And that's with a powered boat with, you know, a motor on it. So to be out there rowing on major waves, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely takes a lot of bit of doing. So just needless to say that this was a common way to get across, just as it was then, as it is now. So, when you're looking at this kind of a feat of going across a body of water, whether you're talking about the Sea of Galilee, or you're talking about the Red Sea, that's quite an undertaking. Now, if you have a boat, great. Well, Israel, when they were backed up against the sea, the Lord led them to the sea, specifically led them to the sea into an area where they were boxed in. Now, there's some different areas and ideas as to where is thought to be the Red Sea crossing, but whichever place that people are arguing for being the actual Red Sea crossing space, except for 
ones that are related to going through the ankle deep marshes, um, there is a significant strategic disadvantage to being in that place. If you're being pursued by somebody who doesn't like you being, you know, your former uh, slave bosses with an army with chariots and such, you don't want to be in those places. You box yourself in. You painted yourself into a corner, so to speak. So with your back to the sea with no way to escape, you're toast. You're toast with an army bearing down on you. So thus, yes, they're calling out, save us, Lord. Well, remember what we were seeing with last week when we went through the Torah portion and they were talking about all the plagues? and how there was this issue with trust, even Israel having problems trusting the Lord, even during the plagues. But one part of that lesson for Israel was to do what? To trust the Lord. And even with the people of of Mitzrayim to also learn who the Lord was and to realize, do we trust? Do we trust the Elohim, the gods of Egypt? Or do we trust the God of all gods, the one who reigns supreme over everything, the creator of heaven and earth? Who do we trust? You know, we see later on when the spies go into the land, you know, some four decades later, what happens? You see a woman in Canaan chooses. No, we have heard about the one who opened the sea and took down the army of the superpower of the time period. We've heard about that. And we are opting with the God who did that versus the one that was reigning supreme there in the lawn of Come on, I should say, the ones who were reigning supreme. Because as we've noted in times past, there were a number of them, both of the ones that were lords or Baals, but also the Ashtarots, the ones that were the fertility goddesses, because there are also multiples of those as well, in addition to other so-called deities out there. So, thus you have both at the time of the Exodus and also you see here with the students of Messiah both facing a situation. With Israel, they were backed in up to the sea. With the students, they're out on a boat in the middle of the lake. So, One of the things, if anything happens when you're on a boat, that's that's a tough deal. I've only been out in a serious situation (laughs) once in a boat far, far, far from land, and it's you've got no other choice. No other choice. Because if you go down, especially in some waters where it's cold or something like that, you're not going to last long. I mean, they've got survival suits that you can wear, and often crews do, that are working like in Dutch Harbor (laughs) out there in the Lucian Islands where it's extremely cold if you fall in because you're not going to last hardly any time at all if you go overboard. So you're pretty much working in in your survival suit. But yeah, if you get lost out in the ocean, far, far from land, that's tough going, especially also during high seas. So those students in the boat were almost in a same situation as Israel there by the backed up against the sea with the army bearing down upon them. So who are you going to trust at that particular point in time? So let's move on a little bit further and take a look at this. So One of the questions is, who is taming the principalities of the air? Now, when we've gone through this particular section of the Torah, 
and we've looked at the what was common mythology of Canaan at that time period, there was what they called the cycles of the Baals. And one of those legends was a one of the Baals was trying to gain supremacy and fighting with another power called Yam, which means it's a Semitic word, which means the same in Hebrew as it does in a number of the other Semitic languages, means sea or big body of water. So you got the sea deity fighting the Lord, one of the Lord deities, and they're trying to go back and forth for power and scheming, conniving, trying to gain supremacy and having to cut deals, so to speak, to win out. And we've seen that before with, with the opening of the sea and why it could have made a big impact on Rahab when she heard about it there in Jericho was that this was not a pitched battle between Adonai and Yam. No. How does the account go? The wind blew, the sea opened. It wasn't a battle. It wasn't a debate. It wasn't a negotiation, a struggle. It was the Lord truly was the actual master over the sea. And the sea gave way, which you would expect if the creator of the waters was actually the one who was running the show. And that was a lesson to the people of Canaan. And it was a lesson to the people of Israel. And thus, it's a lesson to us today that when we are up against our own freedom from our house of bondage, do we trust that our bondage breaker is also able to dominate and destroy those forces that are from our previous way of life that are holding us back and we we see that and we've gone over this in years past in first corinthians chapter 10 because first corinthians chapter 10 the apostle paul draws the lesson from the red sea crossing to say hey when you are backed into a corner he will provide a way of escape just like he did with the sea, spread it open. He will provide a way of escape. So you think you're backed into a corner and there is no way of escape for whatever your bondage is, that your bondage maker is pursuing you. No, he will provide a way of escape. So when we look at this in the, in the passages that we're looking at here today related to this um, encounters that Yeshua was having with his students out in the boat, out during storms, and the commonalities of these stories, because if you're around a body of water, you're going to cross the body of water. You see them in the Gospels, they talk about they got in a boat and they crossed over the lake. They got in a boat, they crossed over the lake. Well, if you're going around an area like this, you can either go around the roads or go across the lake. And especially with fishermen that were a part of the 12, access to boats, good option to go by sea. So the, the passage that we're looking at here today no matter what one of the accounts that you take it from the, in the Gospels, they follow after, and that's why we're reading large sections of these things, because one thing to note in all of these accounts of this is a theme that runs through all of them, whether they included the parables or whether they included the miracles, the healing of the lepers, the freeing of the one that was caught in by a demon, by the unclean spirit. All of these are related to trust. 
Who do you trust that actually has the power to bring freedom? Freedom from 12 years of a bleeding. Freedom from death bringing you back to life. And on and on it goes. Who do you actually trust? So we see in this particular passage that after Yeshua's feeding of the 5,000, his followers, not only just the 12, but also the others of the crowd, they really needed a reality check. And you see that mentioned in some of the ways that this is worded. Like in Matthew 14, 22, and Mark chapter 6, 45, you see the language that used there in Greek that Yeshua made is the way the New American Standard puts it, or constrained is how the King James Version puts that. He constrained the 12 to get in the boat and cross the lake. That is a very forceful way to say that because the underlying Greek word there, you know, ignakasen, strongly urge or invite, urge upon to press. Because the more stronger form of that is basically order, get in the boat, go. So you're wondering, well, wait a minute. This is, seems like this was a, uh, a great event. But you see further on in John chapter 6, verse 15, with the Apostle Yochanan's account of this, that he has, so Yeshua, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So you see that the model of the Messiah, the servant of Adonai, he's focusing on the connection with heaven over pressing the flesh or glad-handing. He was modeling the attitude of the Holy One's servants, what attitude they are to have. Because one of the things that you, you see also when Yeshua sent out the 12, two by two, and they came back reporting, even the demons were submitting to us. And what did Yeshua tell them? Don't be what? Don't be surprised. Don't be basically amazed, went over. Um, yes, you have a comment or question there? <laughs> okay, no problem. It's like, don't be amazed that these demons are submitting to you. Don't be enamored by this. Yeah. It's one of the things that we see as we go on further in John chapter 7. So if you continue on the next chapter after this particular passage in John chapter 6. So John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After these things, Yeshua was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because of the Yehudim were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Yehudim, the feast of booths, or Sukkot, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Yadua, and so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So this is how Yeshua responded to him in verses 6 through 10. So Yeshua said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to, of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in, the, in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So 
one of the longest held things that goes back into ancient times is the principle of whether you're doing publicity for products or politicians or whatever is strike while the iron is hot. You've, you've heard that aphorism, strike while the iron is hot, meaning just like in metalworking, if you want to shape metal that you can shape, you have to heat it up to what? Soften it so that you can beat it on an anvil to shape it, form it, fold it, make it conform to you. Because why? If you try doing that when it's cold, it's not going to work. You're not going to be able to do it. So the aphorism of strike while the iron is hot is when the metal is hot, you just keep on pounding on it to bend it to your will. So thus, that principle in publicity is that if you've got the, the modern parlance of buzz or if you've got influence, keep pushing at it. Keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Get the word out. Get your face in front of people. Don't let them forget about you. Don't let somebody else write the narrative for you. But rather, what do we see? That's... As you go on in John chapter 7, Yeshua delays. And people are wondering, well, where is he? Where is he here at the feast? And some were saying, well, he's, he's a good man. And then others were saying, no, he's leading people astray. So if you were to see that in human terms, from fleshly terms, the striking when the iron is hot, no, he's not following that sort of philosophy at all because they are, quote, setting the narrative for him. But when we look at a continual theme throughout the word, and we saw in that through the plagues of Egypt, is heaven allows the narrative to be set by someone else. Why? And it gets frustrating because one of the things that you see in the Gospels, and it gets a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, why do you speak in parables? Why? So, yes, only some people understand it. They'll be ever hearing, but never understanding, never hearing it, perceiving it. They won't get it. Why? Because there will be plausible deniability. Basically, heaven allows you to come up with other ideas. And it's one of those things that is a message of the prophets and a message of the Messiah. Seek, knock, and the door will be opened. Seek understanding. Seek wisdom. Get wisdom. Look for it. Seek the Lord when he's near. Uh, yes, Anne, you have a comment or a question? Um, yes, well, two, two actually. One, where you said brothers before, could they have actually been his, his family brothers? I mean, mm -hmm. And secondly, when he, he paused and didn't go up to the feast, was that also the same time? Are we... Maybe it could have been Bethany and Lazarus had just died, you know, and it was waiting for to do that one thing before going. Yeah. Well, in this particular passage, like as you go on in John chapter 7, he specifically waited to go up, and it says he went up into the middle of Sukkot until going up. But the thing was is that he didn't go up, and it's – when you see the progression of how this is laid out in John chapter 7, the conversation is like, it starts out with his brothers saying, if you want to be somebody, you, know, you need to get your name out there. You need to get your publicity campaign going. Get the marketing team going. Make sure that they, they get your name out there. And we see as it rolls on, keeps going in chapter 7, that people are asking their own questions. What's going on here? And that's allowed to go on until what? He shows up in the temple and starts preaching. Then it's like, okay, 
you've made up your own minds to so, so to speak to come in here are you actually willing to listen what is actually to what's actually in front of you to keep your eyes open to what's actually in front of you or are you going to go with whatever you thought the the deal was he's a good man or he's leading people astray yeah yes larry go ahead please and another thing about parables is that they were a recruitment technique because you could say the parable and the people who didn't care would just go away and think what a good story you know the people who did care would come and ask the master what he was talking about so he knew that they were interested didn't have to waste his time on the yeah. other guys yeah and also as far as make a name for yourself he already was a guy he was already he didn't really need them to to be i mean for like our politicians who could be just regular guys yeah but it's one of those things that that was allowed people were allowed to develop their own idea and come to that idea yes uh Tammy, go ahead, please. So if Jethro was the first political consultant, <laughs> like your dad likes to say. Management marketing consultant. Marketing consultant. Yeah, management like your dad consultant. Likes to say, yes. So were Yeshua's brothers or cousins the first political consultants? Yeah, that would be. That's because well, what, they, what they said there is sage advice that you'll hear from any sort of publicity consultant is that you get, when you get the buzz, you get moving. And you keep the buzz going, however you can. However you can, you keep that buzz going. Because why? And you see that even it's, uh, you might say, questionable technique, but it still is a technique. Even if it's bad news, just keep the buzz going. Just keep the name out there. Yeah. Uh, yes, and go ahead, please. Is it like, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste? Don't let a crisis go to waste. Yes. The, um, uh, that approach put forward by um, that activist back in the 50s and 60s, um, that is an extremely effective technique. And that, that is as old as the the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Did God really say, or as we've said when we went through Genesis chapter 3, another way that that could be translated is, even if God said this, da-da-da-da-da-da. So you could be read, the Hebrew could be read both ways. Did God really say, or even if God really said this, which I think is, that's an even worse rendering, because that's, incredibly defiant the first one is deception the second translation that's rebellion because even if god said this i'm gonna just do what i want to do i did it my own way yeah see how that worked out so as we move on further from this passage that we see and what Yeshua's approach was. We see what the, quote, political consultants of the day were putting forward. Yeshua's approach and reflected there in the, he talked about the, uh, in the garden leading up to his execution in Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 and 40. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch from me for one hour? Yeah, so when you're, when you're talking about the, the discipline of it, I mean... You know what it's like if you've been massively sleep-deprived and trying to stay awake, to stay on task on something like that. I mean, there's a, there's a legend. I heard about it when, when we were in Korea. Um, one of the students in one of my English classes over there, he had served in the military. And one of the legends that they had among the, <laughs> the military was that the uh, South Korea, if you didn't know, uh, 
was second only to the United States in how many troops they sent to Vietnam for the war. They sent 320,000 to Vietnam. And they were (laughs) incredibly ferocious. I mean, South Korea at that time was under a military dictatorship. I mean, they didn't get real democracy until, like, we were there in the late 90s, and that was just like only a few years after they had gotten a really democratically elected president. So they were under a military dictatorship for decades after the Korean War. So when they sent folk to uh, the soldiers, the Marines, they sent them to Vietnam, they were incredibly ferocious because in, in that particular time period, they came from a country that was invaded by communists. They had an active fifth column in their own country. So, and they, and it's, it's been illegal. It's becoming less so over as time goes on. But from the early days of South Korea, it was illegal to even be a communist, to uh, propagate or spread around any communist literature or anything like that whatsoever. So that was extremely high in their mind period. So going to a country and fighting against a communist army highly motivating if you come from a country that was overrun by it. But one of the legends that is in the Korean military is that there was a soldier who was on the perimeter of one of their bases that fell asleep on guard duty. And according to legend, um, yes, the officer shot him dead. So we have accounts of that like in our civil war, but not really since then but when you when you see with that kind of a discipline there of staying awake when you're on guard duty that's when you're on watch so that's one of the things that yeshua was calling for his students but one of the things when you see in the subtext of it is stay keep watch with me can you just keep watch with me for a little bit? It's a bit like when we go through the Day of Atonement with fasting. That's one day, 24 hours of a no food, no water. Do we just go through it to get, get it over with? Or do we see it then as the discipline of how do we master our flesh? what our flesh wants to do versus what we see is a discipline to bring us closer connected with heaven and with a spiritual connection with heaven. So that's one of the things that we see and going forward even more that Oh, it's a ghost. It's an apparition. But Yeshua responded, It is I. It is I. Is when you were trained up as kids, the stories that come through related to the Passover, those tales, when they say, says they're in Exodus, and we read that before in, in uh, chapter 13, the beginning part of chapter 13 and chapter 12. It's like when your children are asking, why, why are you doing this Passover? You then relate what it was that happened during that whole course through. So this was been passed from generation to generation to generation, each Passover. The f- one generation is training the next generation. Why, why are we doing this? What's the whole point in all of this? So... This account of what the Lord did, of splitting open the sea, mastery over the sea, mastery over Yom, to the point where those in Canaan were faced with a choice. Are we going to stick with our so-called deities, or are we going to be the one going with the one who handed the hat to all of the deities, master over all of them? master over the Elohim of Mitzrayim, 
master over the Elohim of Canaan, master over all of these nations and their so-called deities. So this is in the back of the mind. So when you're out on the boat, when they were, those 12 were out on their boat in the middle of the storm, and then you see Yeshua, in one case, they thought it was an apparition. Who can walk on water? Gets into the boat. Oh, it's, it's their master, their teacher. That's who their teacher is. And the other account, asleep in the midst of a storm. So I just have a small little bit of experience being out in heavy surf. And sleeping is extremely difficult when you're being tossed back and forth in the waves. Especially, you know, we were in a small little wooden boat and you just, every time the, the boat is slamming down in one wave after another, you're thinking, when is this boat going to give way and come apart or get flooded over, capsized, whatever? So, yeah, drenched. So when, when, you're, when you're thinking about that and then someone is sleeping soundly, Remember the account back in Exodus 17. Is the Lord with us or not? You're a so-called teacher here. You're sleeping. Don't you see we're dying? No. The Lord wasn't asleep, just like the Lord wasn't asleep when the cries were coming up from Mitzrayim of the cruel bondage that was going on for generation after generation. The Lord wasn't asleep then. Uh, yes, Larry, go ahead. You know, one of, the, one of the things I always thought was ironic about that is they were always telling him, Master, rest, you're working too hard. <laughs> Here's his chance to take a nap, and they're going to wake him up as soon as... <laughs> Plus, he was trying to tell them how he was going to die, and he wasn't going to drown. Yeah. So if they had faith, they would have maybe remembered that. Yeah, indeed. So yes, so you see that the accounts that you have throughout the word of the rock, the tzur of Israel, the rock of Israel being with Israel throughout the temptus. And you see that in the sea, the army of Mitzrayim destroyed, the deity of the so-called deity of the sea destroyed. And then you see with Yonah that Adonai sends the storm, then also sends this large sea creature, the fish, to scoop him up as he's sinking down into the depths. Uh, yes, Alex, go ahead, please. Um, yeah, preaching to the, to the leaders, I mean, Yeshua was pretty careful about that. He did it at a specific few times, but, I mean, that's, that's just death, and that's ineffective. It's like walking down Redwood Highway and casting seed. You can bet nothing's going to take. You're in their world, and it's just not fertile. So he was careful. He, you know, he kind of got off the beaten path to, and, and met with people in villages to plant that seed because, you know, you go to the Capitol and protest, it probably won't end up, well, yeah, it's their world. They're in charge. Yeah, they'll and your PR guy can't get around it <laughs> because they'll turn it into a really bad story on you. Yes, indeed. And when we see the account that we have of where Yeshua crosses over, so he goes from the west shore, Galilee, to the east shore, the to the southeast shore, to the Decapolis. And he basically shows that, hey, this guy that they were so afraid of, the power of heaven just brought whatever was holding him to heal. You know, and especially that great picture that when they saw him seated and in his right mind, they got afraid. Because, you know, they, they talked about how they tried to restrain him. Chains wouldn't hold him. They tried what they could. They were not able to restrain him. 
here you have this foreigner from their perspective crosses over the lake and just dominates that power that was in that guy so much so that whatever was in that guy went into a whole herd of pigs and they went and drowned in the in the lake and their response was get out of here go so when you see and you see archaeologically the various temples and such that they had over in the Decapolis, oh, they were worshiping all kinds of stuff over there. All kinds of this and that and the other over in the Decapolis. When one showed up right on their shore, one who says, you know, I don't have a base of operations. Yeah, Capernaum, but not really the great empire like Rome. Not the great empire like Philip or Herod Antipas. No, he showed up, dominated that legion, that force that was inside that guy, and threw, threw them out of that guy, gave him freedom. Uh, yes, Anne, uh, go ahead. I guess I kind of answered my own question. <laughs> um. The pe uh, did the people of the the capitalists where the the man with the Gadarene the Gadarean with the demons did did they did they uh, have a have an idea about demons I mean were they well yeah I mean when, uh, when they were you could say Greco Roman in their in their mindset that the area of the Decapolis was heavily Hellenistic. So you, you look in the, whether you're talking about kind of classical um, Hellenistic uh, pantheon of such, you've got the various forces, God of this, God of that, God of the underworld, God of this. So there were the various forces that were in charge of this and that. So yes, there was the idea of there were the bad ones and the good ones, and you just tried to appeal to... <laughs> Try to appeal to either the one that you think is stronger or the the local one that maybe has sway. Their your your patron de your patron deity of a particular area to hopefully have some sway in the spiritual world against these other ones there. But then you just have one from. I mean, you 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 think of it again, like what we saw going through <laughs> going through the Exodus. Here you have Israel is living subjugated within Mitzrayim, a superpower. The deity of the subjugated people is dominating all of the deities of that country, but still approaching it like, hey, let us go. I mean, you see the power of the one that is aiding and has care over israel and we saw it in our last torah reading his advisors are saying hey let them go our country is destroyed so who is actually in charge they had to come to that conclusion themselves the people of mitzrayim had to come to the conclusion who was actually in charge Another question, I, mean, I don't know, sometimes I get a little confused or what, but um, when, when the demon spoke, he spoke to the man saying, can we go into the swine, into the swine? Who was there to hear that? That I mean, besides Yeshua, you know, can we go? Was, was, Yeshua was right there, and the demon verbally came out of the man and said, Will you, will you allow us to go into the swine? I mean, that's the way it's represented, is that that's what was happening, that you were having this conversation. I suppose that way, or was it just that one gospel? I'm, try, I'm trying to remember exactly how it's uh, portrayed in all the gospels. It's a, it's a good question, but that's the idea that's communicated, is that, yes, it was a, it was a verbal thing. The people, those that... Uh, 
would want to know and were witnessing. But then when you see later on, uh, as it's in the accounts that we have read here today, that when they lost a whole herd of pigs, then the farmers went what? They went and they told. They went and told everybody what happened. Well, the what account was it that they told that the, then everybody came out to say, get out of here. It wasn't that, oh my goodness, there's, there's someone here, a force from Israel that has just dominated all of these so-called deities, including what was holding on to this guy that we had couldn't handle him at all. He was a public menace. Dominated and freed him. Now he's sitting there. We know what he was like before. And now when we look at him now, he's sitting there at the feet of this teacher that came over across the lake from Israel. I thought the farmers were just saying, we lost all our money with these <laughs> pigs running into the sea. Yeah, and, and we, we, we see an example of that in the book of Acts with uh, the one where you have the, uh, the girl that, was, um, that was, had a dark force that was enslaving her and was making the, the master money by the girl's... Uh, um, connection to the dark side so to speak but then when she was freed what rather than going oh praise god now i know who's really in charge wow what a wonderful thing has happened the uh, the lord he is god no it's like oh crud there goes my money maker my cash cow so uh yes i'm sorry um larry and i'm sorry ben and i had his hand up there yeah, uh, well, you know, also, I don't know if it was in the Romans, and recently I was seeing a commentary that said that um, a legion, and they, the, 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 the Jews, they would call the Romans swine, so they said he was showing his dominion over the Romans, too, by doing that. And the other thing that's interesting about that is that the, uh, in that one thing where there was one man, some of them was two men, but there was one man there, he said, let me go with you, Master. And, and Yeshua un, uncharacteristically said, no, you need to stay, just stay here. And I guess because he knew they were going to get him, ask him to go away, they were going to listen to him. And they, he left the guy there to tell them what had been done for him. It was an interesting, the whole thing is a very interesting little scenario. Yeah, because they, they got the message before they saw what, would, what happened to him. They got the message. But the question is, is, could they handle the truth, to paraphrase? No, they weren't going to listen to the master. So it's like, yes, they, they left a local who had been despised because of his behavior, but now when they see the change, they're like, wow. You, when, when you're faced with that kind of a response, what, what do you do? Do you realize whatever changed him should be the route? I should want to find out how he got changed. Maybe I can be changed too. Or, oh, what is that weird thing to happen? I don't have anything to do with that. And you see it happen in families today. When, when the Lord frees somebody from something, if you're in a family and there's someone in the family who's just been reprehensible and... They turn, the Lord turns them around. They're like, some people are just praising God. Other people in the family, like, you know, stop it with the God stuff. Yeah, that you do you. Yeah, okay, you're radically different than you were before, but you do you. Yeah, so leave me alone. Now, Ben and I, and then uh, Larilla there. So you touched on uh, what I was going to bring up about the uh, woman, an axe, you know, the sorcerer fortune teller that was used for gain uh, by the wealthy merchants of that area. Um, it's interesting, the, the difference when we look at that is that the Gadarean man um, was an outcast. Uh, he, you know, break the chains, you know, he couldn't be contained. Um, he was a wild man, 
you know, hiding out in the caves, hurting himself. Um, no one wanted to be around him. And after he was in his right mind, is that he wanted to follow the Lord. He really wanted to go with him and just be with him. And the Lord said to him to go to his people, the people that had rejected him, uh, Christ. But they, they can't deny, like when somebody like the man at the pool of Siloam, like you can't deny somebody that you've seen year after year, day after day, month after month, completely insane or crippled or blind. When that person begins to testify the goodness of God and his faithfulness, it's, it's irrefutable. And I just found that to be profound versus the woman who was praised and worshipped and sought after and pandered to, money-making cash cow, basically, when she was set free. There was no you know, wanting to come to the master. There was no mention of her, basically. Thank you, Lord, for setting me free. It was, I mean, I, I do often wonder, was there more of a resentment that her actual communion with devils was taken away and she's no longer sought after that she was no longer having this like beneficial uh, money-making situation going on. Hmm. That is interesting. That she is just uh, not even comes, comes to uh, play after that. Yeah, very interesting. Let's see. So I think we're, oh, yes, Lorella, and we'll close things out here. Um, this was just to answer yes. uh, Anne's question. Yes. In Matthew chapter 8. Sorry. Wow. I'm Go ahead. Electronic here. Um, in Matthew chapter 8, verse uh, 30, 33, leading into it, the whole herd of pigs rushed down into the cliff in the sea and died in the water. 33, those who fed him fled and went away into the city and told everything. So yep. it was the, the pig herders that were taking care of them that fled into the city, said everything that happened uh, to those who were possessed with the demons, and behold, the whole city came out to meet Yeshua. Yeah. So that's... Yeah. That, that, that was who... There, there, was a, there was a crowd of that's people right. besides the disciples. Those uh, prattling pig people, yes. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel